Hi, this is Maggie Rose, and you're listening to Salute the Songbird on Osiris Media. I started this podcast to showcase women in music who inspire me and who I want folks everywhere to know about. My guests are icons in contemporary music, independent artists, studio musicians, hit songwriters, and power players behind the scenes. All of them challenging the status quo, respecting the hustle, and leading the way for women following in their footsteps. Salute the Songbird is a platform for women in music to share their stories and let their voices be heard. And everyone has a seat at the table. Welcome. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Salute the Songbird. And before I talk about this week's guest, I want to make an announcement that I've been very excited to share with you. And that is that this Friday, February 19th, my single Do It is finally dropping. And it's off my forthcoming record that I'm also finally getting to release this year. I made it down in Muscle Shoals, Alabama at Fame Studios, which is an historic spot where so much incredible music has come from, a lot of which made me want to become a musician myself. And I made the project with Ben Tanner of Alabama Shakes Producing. Of course, I had Sarah and Larry and Alex from my band, part of the sessions, and some incredible musicians like David Hood, who's a swamper who's played on Aretha Franklin's records and Wilson Pickett's records. And Ben Tanner also brought in some other members of Alabama Shakes to play on it background singers who sing with Brittany Howard and Emily King, Will McFarlane, who plays with Bonnie Raitt. It was just a dream to put this record together and even more so now to finally be able to release that with you. So keep your ears peeled for that new music. And I also shared this new music with today's guest. I met her when I was on tour with Hart and Joan Jett. Of course, I'm talking about Nancy Wilson of Hart today. And she's a rock star and she's an absolute legend. She's written guitar parts for Barracuda and Magic Man and Crazy on You. But one thing that I've really loved about her and I've noticed about her since we've met is her vocal support for artists like myself. That you know, She doesn't need to do that, and that's just who she is. And she's been kind enough to take the time to talk to me today. So I'm really excited. I'm a little intimidated, but... I'm eager for you to get to know Nancy Wilson a little bit better. It's so good to see you. Thank you so much for doing this. Hey, you having a beer? I'm having a little seltzer. I, if you would like to get a, a glass of wine or something. or I'm fine. I got my big old... Hydrate, hydrate. Hydrate, hydrate. I'm like, it's five o'clock on Friday here. I'm ready. Oh, it's only three. I've got to wait a couple hours. We'll just get started. Jump right in. Okay. I'd like to welcome the incomparable, legendary Nancy Wilson to salute the songbird. Thank you so much, Nancy, for joining me. I salute (laughs) you. I I salute you, girl. You are. I'm happy to be here with you. Well, I'm so honored and and so happy. I have so many questions, and I think everyone listening is going to be very excited that you're on the show today. Just, I want you to kind of help me with your origin story. You you grew up in Washington State. Yep. In a military family. Yes. Uh, I have heard you talk about your mother describing her as a very strong woman, having to play both the father and mother roles at times with your dad being stationed in the yeah. South Pacific. 
Right. He was. You read the book, didn't you? <laughs> well, I have the book. I'm dreaming. Um, and I love I actually love Audible. So I've been listening to it. Oh. It's really wonderful and soothing yeah. and candid. And I have some of the book yet to read, but it's been so fun to do my research. And I have two sisters as well. And it just made me kind of resentful of them that, you know, they didn't want to be in a band with me. They both are are lawyers. And I know that your eldest sister, Lynn, hasn't collaborated with you musically, but she's still involved in what you've done with art. She was a very young mother. Mm -hmm. So that was part of the reason, even though we did some singing with her in the studios, et cetera, and she was our wardrobe lady for a while, for quite a while on the road with us, you know, she was content to be a a team player, you know, on our team. I'm sure it was challenging for her at times because we got all this glory all the time. Right. (laughs) No. And she was kind of in the background and she was, is a great singer too. She was like a solo soprano in the choir growing up. And she, as a family, we all harmonized all the time. So we, we employed her voice quite a few times in the studio, at least, you know. Oh, that's awesome. She dragged her around the country, too. I didn't know that part. I love my sister so much. And when I need legal help, they're there for me. But it would be nice to have had someone to harmonize with. And you Yeah. Know. <laughs> yeah, I, I listened to your interview with Bob Lefsetz from a couple years ago. Oh, and I, yeah. I love him. It was such a great conversation. But... I found almost myself getting like emotional at times with some of the commonalities of oh, you, wow. you knowing that this was your vocation. Cause I think I'll talk to people who oftentimes had maybe a few alternative career paths that they could have pursued, but yeah. this was a calling for you and you were self-taught guitar player, correct? Yeah. From the beginning as a nine, about nine year old or eight, eight and a half, we saw the Beatles appear mm. on that Ed Sullivan show that's like the lunar landing, you know, when you talk right. about today. But uh, that from that moment forward, it was like, must have guitar. Right. Yeah. Must create music, must. And therefore, I kind of never had a regular job to speak of. I mean, I did some stuff. I, I taught young kids how to play and I babysitting and, you know, I was an algebra tutor. (laughs) Wow. I never waited at a table, Mm -hmm. which I'm kind of almost embarrassed to admit. You know, I never worked under a fluorescent light, you know, and got paid for that anywhere. (laughs) You know, I must be a spoiled brat or just had my calling, you know, early enough to to do it for the rest of my life my career, you know, I started early and then I kept with it. And luckily it didn't all go to hell in a handbasket anytime, you know, it wavered a few times and then it sort of came back and, you know, but you kind of roll with it because that's all I know how to do. I'm so glad that that's what you stuck with. And it must have been apparent to you at an early age that you were innately gifted in music because of your proficiency with guitar and, and being able to even leverage that to an odd job in tutoring other people. But you and Anne in your early musical careers were on slightly different paths. Yeah. Well, I'm the younger, I'm the baby of the family and she's four years older. So she was able to get into like a real rock band 
after we'd been doing sort of folky stuff, little bands with girls in it. And then she joined a real rock band with guys in it mm-hmm. and, you know, real drums and actual amplifiers and stuff. And was older enough to play in clubs as well, you know, after, after she's 18 or no, 21, I guess. And, but she'd have to stay, you know, stay in a different area, you know, during the breaks and, only drink Cokes and stuff. And sure, the X's on your hands. <laughs> I had a fake ID basically when I was in my teenage years just so I could play with a Bruce Springsteen tribute band. Oh, yeah? Yeah. What did you call yourself? I was Margaret Durante at the time and they were the they are the B Street Band. So they're still <laughs> one of the hardest working bands I've ever met. Oh, wow. And they really bring people from all over on, on the Jersey shore. And I was a Catholic school girl. So that was my wow. first foray into, you know, singing for a drinking crowd and all of that. <laughs> all of that. <laughs> I know what you're saying. <laughs> it's my, my baptism by fire, I guess. Yeah, no getting on that stage. And I didn't know what the hell I was doing at all. Right. I finally got on a real stage with, and with a real, you know, Anne's band at that time in Vancouver, BC. And that was a rowdy, rowdy crowd at that cabaret, as they call them there. Right. And it was, you know, some real hard boozing folks. And there were people just fighting and keeling over and arguing and, you know, just passing out throwing up and you know what you name it not quite the same scene as your suburban gigs that you were taking before you decided exactly yeah I was going to university for about a year and a half before I joined because I knew I was going to join but I wanted some other experiences like some creative writing and some English literature kind of stuff just to bring with me to the band because you know it never hurts to read a few books and expand your mind other than with substances yeah with solid uh good inspirational aspirational materials like books and putting the expectation on yourself to learn how to spell and learn how to write a paper and back then I just had like a uh electric typewriter that one of the buttons kept sticking but I was degraded on the way it presented and, you know, you, you had to make it look good and not be, you know, just a bunch of um, plagiarism. <laughs> sure. Intentional, you know? intentional yeah. work. Yeah, exactly right. So what was the deciding factor for you to leave university and then go join Anne mm-hmm. with Hart in Vancouver? You know, university was pretty expensive for my folks. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I had pretty much got out of it what I was, what I got into it to do, which was just to get some tools, you know, Mm -hmm. just get some tools as a writer mainly and bring those along with me. And I took some music too. I took music theory, which was like taking like a terrible math class. I I, I don't know how I even (laughs) got a B in that class because it's really very mathematical. We use it more instinctively, I think, than mathematically because it's about reading and the, you know, the circle of fifths and the flats and the sharps and all the different modalities. And, you know, I mean, I learned a lot from it and I use it, you know, for harmony singing, you know, intervals and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's really useful. And I've heard you talk music and you know what you're talking about. So the theory has taken hold and it's working. And obviously you're known for your guitar playing 
your voice, but your harmonies really round out all these songs that you know the whole world knows. That's one of my favorite ways of singing is the harmony parts. You know, like right now I'm working on a solo record, my first ever studio solo album. So I'm doing all the lead singing and a lot of harmony singing with some of the guys, but I don't claim to be an A-level singer or a prima ballerina of singers like my sister, but I'm really getting a lot of joy out of it because even something she told me once about singing was so great. She said, um, don't, don't fixate on the pitch or don't fixate on if it's perfect. Mm-hmm. Just tell the story. Right. And being who you are telling the story. And I was like, wow, you mean I, I don't have to feel like a little pipsqueak as a singer next to you, you know? <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's really gratifying. And I got to tell you, I listened to your songs this morning and I love your voice, of course. And, but I love a lot of these songs. Like, that, is it released yet? Is no, that- it's not. You got the advanced copy. And, okay. And, uh, it's really good. I got to plug it right here because my favorite song, I think, is Saint. Such a good song and a lot of great songs you probably were involved in creating and mm-hmm. in fact saint is the only outside song oh really that i've cut in in probably years but i live in this town of nashville where there are people who yeah it, you know, i i love writing for other artists as well so why wouldn't i yeah as an artist strike when i find something that connects with me the way that song did Yeah, that's a good one. You know, I liked um, Do It. For your consideration, bring out the best in me. Telethon, you got today. And what are we fighting for? Those are like, that's almost the whole thing. You just named the whole album and I'm I'm so flattered. Very strong. And incidentally, you recorded at Muscle Shoals at Fame Studios, I saw, and We've been working on a biopic about Muscle Shoals called Muscle Shoals. It's the story of the development and the conflict that surrounded Muscle Shoals, the studio. Right. And, production and all the songwriting and the things that came out of that studio. We, you know, we've, we got it really far along. We had a pilot written and everything. And then, of course, like everybody else, we've been sort of stuck inside I was so excited when I heard that you were working on a project about Muscle Shoals and and all of that. Um, And I was going to ask if the pandemic had halted the progress on that. I so hope that that gets made because that place is tremendous. It's got such a great sound. I mean, the sound on your record is very Muscle Shoals. They say there's some kind of magic in those walls. There is. And it's, it's a time capsule. I think you go there and you feel the sanctity of that room and all those artists who've gone before you. And aesthetically, they haven't really changed a whole lot about fame and what Rick Howell had going on there. Which is great. I mean, it's probably some of the original dust in those tubes, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) That's what makes it sound so good. You're the dust. You You want the dust. Well, you'll have to keep us all updated on the status of that project, because I think that you would tell the story beautifully. And I've heard you reference what you did with Mushroom on your first album, Dreamboat Annie, and how the whole analog 
mm-hmm. process and, and kind of a similar vibe to Very similar, what's yeah. captured there. And I know that that's important to you. I mean, digital is all great and good and they're developing digital sound to sound much more, you know, analog, but it's still not the same. It's just not. Right. It's all individual tastes, I think, on the part of a producer in particular. What kind of dirt you you will let people hear, like if you if you want the dirt or if you want it antiseptic. And a lot of times the antiseptic sound is just so uninteresting. You know, like you want the character, you want the the shadow with the light, you want the dark and the light. The brilliance, you know, you want the sparkle, but you want the growl, you know, rattle and hum, you know. That's such an eloquent way to put it. And what an, it's such a razor's edge to walk as an artist. It's a line to walk, you know, that's like on my uh, album right now, working on, I'm definitely the producer per se, but all my guys in the band that I'm passing files to and with and back and forth from, it's... It's them too. I mean, it's really a collaborative. That everybody has their own, like, okay, the Dropbox or the Pro Tools or the whatever you know, kind of uh, interface they're using. Right. And I'm so untech, but I know what I like, and I really know how to steer, you know, the sound getting along. And sometimes it's just like, like the sound of an amp that sounds like it's about to explode is the right sound, you know? <laughs> right. Where are you at the process in this solo record? Um, I've got almost everything written except one song now. And most of, most there's a couple things that are have gotten mastered so far. The Rising is the first single which was mastered. I love that. The the Bruce Springsteen cover. Springsteen song. And uh everything else is coming right along. It'll be about eleven songs. I have to still write another song that's uh, instrumental, acoustic intro to something for it's. It'll be for Edward because it'll be de- dedicated to Eddie Van Halen. I love that. I gave him his first acoustic guitar one day, one time. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, he he's was certainly a- in the guitar world revered as just an icon. But everyone, everyone knew. Eddie yeah. Van Halen and and Van Halen's yeah. music. And I know that he was a dear friend of yours. I'm so glad you gave him that acoustic guitar because I'm yeah. sure that that yielded a lot of wonderful music for the rest of us. I'm not sure that he recorded much with it, but I'm sure we're going to find out because he you know, played me something over the phone early, early, early one morning, the next day after I gave it to him. Um, and it was so exquisite. It was just a beautiful piece of acoustic music. And somewhere it has to exist on tape, you know. I, I want to go back to what you're saying about that really delicate balance between over manicuring your sound and then letting that roughness come through because you're speaking about your voice as you know you would compare it to your sisters or whatever but what I believe you have that is very compelling to me is a vocal ID that defines your voice and I feel like I've always tried to be a technically great singer and then I moved to Nashville and I realized that everyone around me was a technically great (laughs) singer and what makes you 
have something to offer is that story that you're telling and, and having a, an identity that's all your own and, and this character or timbre that I think you present and you certainly have that. Well, thank you. I, I mean, there was always a thing like among heart fans met many years along now too, since people would say, well, I'm, I'm one of the Nancy fans, you know, like I like the Nancy songs and I love Anne too, but I'm a Nancy fan. You know, like they would, they would take their camps and you're like, no one asked you to do that. Nobody ever needed to take sides, you know. Oh, I mean? my God. The main idea is just that you're blessed because you could do this for your job. And you're blessed if, you know, anybody is a fan or anybody takes interest or anybody wants to sit up and listen to what you have to say. So, you know, I keep counting the same those same blessings every waking day <laughs> because it's like you know even in a lockdown in, during COVID um, I've got this music space I've got ideas I've got really nice guitars I've got cool amplifiers I have great microphones and a friend who knows how to run shit <laughs> right that's always you know? good to have that friend yeah because I'm really not good at that I've been too spoiled but anyway it's it's just like so it keeps my sanity, you know, because I get to do what I know how to do, what's inspiring to do, and hopefully inspires other people that get to have it in their world, you know, once it's done. So it's all for good. Well, and your music is so enduring, and that's not because you've towed a line sonically throughout your career, because I think when you look at your albums, each album has its own realization from a production standpoint, like you incorporate what's going on in the time. So the consistent factor to me is the content of that music and what you were writing in it or what you were choosing to cut. And uh, that's why I feel like your adaptability and during COVID times is something that's going to continue to serve you well. So I'm glad you have that friend, but whatever you're cranking out, I can't wait to hear. <laughs> I'm done with the thousand piece jigsaw puzzle. I can't do that anymore. I just like sing and play, you know, and write and rewrite and rewrite, you know. The prologue of your book, Kicking and Dreaming, had me kind of like cackling at points. I was laughing so hard when you're talking about this stint that you had at Lucifer. The club was called <laughs> Lucifer in Calgary. And this is shortly after you had left college, correct? Yeah. To join Heart. And you guys had gained a lot of notoriety playing Led Zeppelin covers and you were getting attention for how well you were delivering these songs. And I'm sure you were fielding these disparaging comments like, I heard you say Led Zeppelin with tits or something like that, that you'd hear people <laughs> saying to you. And the manager of Lucifer was discouraging you from wearing jeans and wanted you to be more of a disco band. And it's like the crowd you were bringing in because they weren't ordering expensive cocktails and just wasn't accepting you for who you were. No bad language on stage, no midriff exposure. Uh, please wear coordinated outfits and no jeans. Oh my you know, god! And no bad language, and you know. 
So Anne so pretty said, much the antithesis of what heart is. Yeah. And it was also a dinner club. And they had these big, you know, vats of cheap food, you know, that and goes, well, you know, I hope you're enjoying your dinner because last time I tasted any of it, it did taste like Lysol. Yeah. And so <laughs> we were promptly fired, you know, and we were kind of proud of it, especially for the fact that um, we got a phone call that same night with an offer to open up for Rod Stewart. So it was kind of like, whoa, this is a karmic justice going on right here. So you guys took this gig in Montreal, open for Rod Stewart at the Forum. Yeah, that's right. Lighters in the air, you had already Dreamboat Annie out. Right. But didn't even realize what a hit you had in Montreal, right? Right, we, did, we, we knew it was out, but we didn't know it was breaking in Montreal. And people recognized, I think it was Magic Man we mm -hmm. started that with. And they all put their lighters up and it was like, oh my God, it's a constellation. It's, a, it's like we're in the universe of greatness. And it was the biggest first big stage we'd ever been out on, you know, like it was cavernous. Yeah, like this is rock and roll. We're not at Lucifer's anymore now. <laughs> Or the birdcage, or the, you know, the Zodiac room, or the, you name it. All those rooms we all played. You were, you were in the big leagues, and you had a huge hit in Montreal that almost surprised you with Magic Man. And your sister was dating your manager at the time, yeah. correct? And Which plus, would be quite odd, I think, to deal with. The, yeah. the incest of it all when you're a moving target you know and you're always traveling there's proximity to think of and you know finding a meaningful relationship outside of the, the trajectory that you're on is next to impossible to begin with so i mean if it works for you as a family to work together I, i'm all for that you know there's sort of a thing in the in a family of rock people like I've been in for a long time now, where there's, you know, there's certain people that that you consider like, okay, he's an adult, you know, like my drummer, Ben, you know, he has a kid at home and he worked it out with his wife and they've managed to make it all go okay. And they come out to the tour, so they get to see each other and they've worked out a system where they their relationship can actually survive, mm -hmm. you know, you know, a lot of a lot of rock dudes are kind of Peter Pans, you know. In a lot of bands, you know, a lot of different guys I've known. Mm -hmm. They probably don't didn't have kids. They're sort of the child on their own, you know. Mm -hmm. They're their own favorite child, their inner child. Right. <laughs> but when when I had had to go through a really really tough time, like I was getting a divorce at one point, and I found myself just running to the drummer, you mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. who was the adult, my friend Ben is like, oh my God, you know, I need you right now. <laughs> and mm -hmm. um, There's always some somebody, you know, you can lean on and if not most of them, all of them, but they would all be kind, but Ben would know the difference. The gravity of the moment you were in. Right. It's astounding to me that you, you're seemingly someone who has been able to have it all. And I mean that because, you know, we're talking about the Peter Pans of the world and the luxury of being 
the male front man in this business is that you don't necessarily need to map out that life schedule years in advance of, okay, it's a priority to me to have a family, but I'm also really good at what I do. I don't want to neglect my career that I've worked all these years to build up and, and sustain now. Yeah. And that was another moment in some of these interviews that I've been listening to that made me emotional because this year has totally thrown us for a loop. It's delayed all the plans that, you know, I would have had for starting a family, having this album in the can and, you know, the best laid plans you can't always count on, you know, that, right. Yeah. I had a, I struggle with that a lot. And, you know, trying to schedule to see my kids and tour and, right. you know, it's even scheduled to have my kids to begin with. Mm-hmm. Like you're saying, you know, just planning for a family can be really a tightrope mm-hmm. walk, you know, in your life. I think I've been able to manage it and have everything I've wanted out of this career, including a family. I mean, the blessing of this curse we're in right now is the home of it all is pretty inspiring, finally, to have and not be on the road right now. And it's been creative and fulfilling. And even though it's really terrifying outside these four walls, you know. The ambiguity of it all is is the hardest part for us all. I mean, I first got to meet you when I was on tour with you in 2019 and it was such a glorious tour all these women you brought some of my friends from Nashville out to also be in the supporting role like you had invited me in my band but it just feels like eons ago we we opened the first night was at Jones Beach on Long Island which is such a cool venue that was my first time ever even being there let alone being on the stage was there a hurricane that night there was a hurricane and also a vip tent (laughs) caught on fire and it smelled (laughs) like burnt plastic up until like 15 minutes before the gates opened oh my god that's right at jones beach every time almost every time i can think of we played jones beach was which was quite a few times there's always like a typhoon or you know, t- tornado or it's a huge storm. And then you got to, you know, see if the show needs to be either canceled or postponed and something blows over and catches on fire. It's always something like that. And that tour in 2019 was a long awaited tour for heart fans. Joan Jett was your direct support. Yep. About three years since we'd been on a big tour and it was really satisfying because in a certain way, maybe because we hadn't been out for so long, people were really ready to see us again. You know, we're not just out every single summer. Maybe a vacuum thing happened and it was like, oh, heart's going to play. Okay, let's go. You know, and it was a really fun tour. It was a really nice tour. I mean, I hope next year we could do it all over again, you know, and with potentially vaccines coming up fairly soon, as they're saying. Right. You know, it might be doable in a certain protocol sort of way, but, you know, I'm hopeful for that. And I've, I still got my legs under me, so I, I could still do the rocker size, that's for sure.
you had such a successful debut album with Dreamboat Annie and Heart, and then you had Little Queen, both of them produced by the same gentleman, Mike Flicker. Right. And then I'm calling this the pre-MTV era just because that medium being introduced, I would think as a woman would have to really throw a wrench in your whole approach to music. And I'm sure there were advantages and disadvantages to this new medium coming about. Kind of a fashion party. It was like a dress up party at first, you know, you know, Prince of the New Revolution looks so super cool. And, you know, like the lace gloves and all the, you know, cool fashion of it. But then as the 80s kind of kept rolling through, there was kind of a expectation on making those videos right. and being kind of sex kittenish. Yeah. And so, you know, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But what was wrong with it for us, though, was the fact that they weren't wanting to listen to our original material as much as expecting us to to uh, record other songwriters material the hit songwriters the la stable songwriters right and some of those songs are beautiful you know these dreams are beautiful which was more out of the box and so was alone and some other stuff but uh it was like well can't we even get a couple of our own songs on these albums now you know right and then that coupled with the you know okay, stick out your lips and suck in your cheeks, you know, kind of stuff. It was just a little more more like, what happened to the mind-expanded 70s after all, you know? And and two incredibly successful albums, I've always been told, hey, you get a hit, we'll let you do what you want to do. It's like, that didn't fucking happen at all. In fact, I felt like they tightened the reins on your creative approach. And then you're dealing with the sexualization of you and Anne, which is a weapon and it can be an extension of your art form. But then there are people who can view it as something that's undermining your art form. And I heard people asking you if your guitar was plugged in and you had done such incredible guitar work on all the subsequent albums. I know. Do you actually play the guitar? It's disappointing. Are your boobs even real? Right. Sadly, like not very much has changed, even post Me Too movement. I think it's it's old habits die hard in the show business, in you know, in entertainment industry, and certain places. I don't know about Nashville anymore, but I think Nashville tend used to tend to anyway be a little more of an old fashioned town, you know. But uh, you know, when it when it's a new you know, century <laughs> and, and women are moving forward with more power in the culture, which is always a good sign because the saying goes that any culture or city or gathering of people is only as good as how it treats its women. And if, if you're only going to be able to be objectified in a culture, that's just way too narrow for the, the whole person who is the woman. Sure. So, you know, I know I'm singing to the choir right here. Yeah, well. It's, but it gets irritating. You're singing with the choir. With I mean, the I, choir, we've, yeah. we've both exactly. witnessed all sorts of, and <laughs> I, I do feel 
empowered, not because something has shifted dramatically in how women are perceived or treated, but I think when you've been in the business for a while, you just circumvent those yeah. negative forces and you start to really trust your own gut and, and you keep plowing ahead and making music that you want to endure and be timeless. You got to go there to get back. That's one of the things like, okay, we went there. We had to reel ourselves back from that particular brink in that particular era. And I mean, being right now for me, being at home right now, I'm like, I've reconnected in so many ways to my college girl self when I was early on before the first album, just writing poetry and, you know, being really inspired with music and trying to write cool guitar parts and, you know, put notebooks and notebooks and notebooks, little scraps of paper everywhere. You put those in a, an old uh, suitcase and I'll come back to these later, you know? So I've sort of come back to some of that early, early scribblings from my 19 year old girl self, I guess. I love that. You know, it's, it's, it's good. I mean, it's a full circle which sounds trite, but it's good for your soul, I think, to reconnect to the original burning inspiration that started you trying to do it to begin with. And, you know, it's it's working for me. <laughs> and there have been a couple points of re-engagement for you, I feel, just looking at your career from a macro level where you've always come back to music, but you've been... Yeah. Wise enough to look at certain moments in your history and just say, this is not the time for me to keep pushing on this. I, I want to recalibrate why I love music and and come back with an approach that's going to be inspired where you're reinvigorated. Yeah. You know, when I was trying to start my family, it took a few years. You know, it was, it was a hiatus. Mm-hmm. I never quit or broke away from heart but I had to be home to try to start a family for a couple of years and again at that point I got new perspective and I I learned how to do some gardening and you know I was writing other stuff and I was working on um, film scores and stuff you know so I I was still putting more um, logs on the creative fire all the time and when I got back into the band now, having had my kids, you know, I was like, I have all kinds of new things to bring into this as a songwriter, as a performer. It, it was feeding my soul outside of just the same tour, album, tour, album, tour, album. Right. You know, and we've always been worked. They always worked us way too hard. Yes. <laughs> you know, but, you know, am I complaining? Not really. <laughs> That's where you learn your craft, I guess. You'd been able to fill up the well and the work that you've done on film, like Stillwater to me from Almost Famous is basically a real band and like Fever Dog. Fever Dog is my whole band. We've, we've sung that together in our bus, our own little Almost Famous moment. That one turned out pretty good. It's awesome. Fever Dog. (laughs) at my dog. Back dog. (laughs) I, I love it. So I feel like you've never stopped, even when your physical surroundings around you weren't like what you're saying, just that that tour bus life on the road, 
kind of grinding it out thing. I mean, there's an exhaustion that comes with that lifestyle that if you're thinking about getting into it, you probably don't want to know. <laughs> it's like I turn back, you know, yeah. if you're not ready to be just slammed with exhaustion at times, no sleep and still pulling it out of nowhere, you know, mm-hmm. to prove it <laughs> that you can, you know, rise above, reach down and rise up. It's hard for me sometimes to not blurt out when like a very wide-eyed young boy or girl asks me like, how do I get into the music industry? It's sometimes hard for me to bite my tongue and not say like, you might as well just go be a doctor or or brain surgeon. You know, so many people have, at the end of a conversation would say, well, what advice would you give somebody just starting out in this business? And I'd say, this is my standard joke. I would turn back if I were you. Right, <laughs> yeah. You know, like in The Wizard of Oz, because if you're not ready for the lions and tigers and bears, you know, and the deep, dark woods, it's it's not for the faint-hearted, I'll put mm-hmm. it that way. And being a military brat to begin with, I think gave us a lot more of the, you know, the Marine Corps sure. stance, the attitude, the military pluck that it took to join the army and see the world, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and kind of have that autonomy because maybe anytime you got settled, you'd be moving again soon or yeah, you know, having that introvert that's sort of there in every musician, even though your job is to be on full display in so many other ways. That's really well said too. Yeah. You know, I feel you stay engaged. I'm an example of someone you've kept in contact with since this tour where we were on it together, but we didn't have a lot of free time to just catch up. You seem like you have your finger on the pulse of all these things that are really exciting in the music scene. Road Case Royale, I listened to that album that you did with Liv Warfield. Yeah. And that story was so cool and something unique to you, Nancy, where you became a fan of hers from a performance that you saw, and then you invited her to open up for y'all at the Hollywood Bowl. And then you just started hanging out and saying, let's do something. Yeah. But you weren't just bullshitting, like you actually were going to make it come to fruition. Let's not just be people that say, let's do this, let's actually do it, you know. And you did. And we did, and we we went on the tour, we opened briefly anyway for for Bob Seger. And it was going really well until the tour had to be canceled since he had an injury thing happen to him. And you know, so it wasn't pandemic related that that tour was. No, it was pre-COVID. It was a couple of years back, mm. and uh, it was during Hart's, you know, blackout. Sabbatical, yeah. Sabbatical. That's a better way. Yeah. <laughs> well, I really love it. It's it's rock and soul, which is where I like to live. And I felt I listened to all the songs and they they sound so good and they're anthemic but then the lyrics behind them I felt listening to them as a woman there were some really pointed lyrics like get loud loud, the first track and it's about women who feel like they're forced to blend in or sink into obscurity or not be vocal but it's a party anthem if you just if if you allow yourself to just enjoy the sound and vibe but those lyrics are packing a pretty heavy punch you know when you hear a big beautiful black woman like Liv 
saying, no girls like us in magazines, you know, mm -hmm. fantasy, you know, peaches and creams, you know. Right. And she's like, whoa, she owns it. Yeah, I'm really proud of that album. Then Ryan, her partner that came with her from Prince, the land of Prince. Ryan Waters. Uh, Ryan Waters, right. He came with me into Heart last tour, as you know, and he's just a beast, you know. So I'm putting Live on a song um, on my album. I'm going to start it later tomorrow, but I'm going to, we're going to cover a real rock version of Dreams by the Cranberries. Love it. With me and Liv both singing like the harmonies, you know, all the way, basically all the way through. I love that album, their first album. No slouch, the Cranberries. You know, since this is a program where I'm speaking with all women, you have an incredibly unique perspective of just being a guitar god. I'm not even going to use the suffix goddess because... <laughs> Gender doesn't really play into it. In fact, my one of my guitar players in my band was like, you got to ask her like how she came up with the riff for Crazy on You and was like <laughs> nerding out. And, you know, you had Billy Gibbons being like, you're pretty good for a girl. And, yeah. <laughs> and I know that he respects you and you've, you've been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and there's no contest that you know what you're doing with your guitar. It's my main squeeze, you know. Um, I love my, you know, my my Telecaster, it's my other main squeeze. You know, when I play rhythm on the electric, it's so super fun, it's so loud, it's so good and loud. You put colored lights on loud music and it's just something that, a third thing happens besides the, the lights and the music. That's why they call it like watching a show, you know. Mm -hmm. not, I'm not listening to the show, I'm, I'm watching and listening to the show. But the acoustic thing, you know, I approach it very much like a percussion instrument. It's not some little delicate, wispy, pokey thing that I try to do. I really try to pound on it and use it like percussion. I just think it's catchier. <laughs> There's a Spanish influence and a classical influence when I hear your acoustic instrumentals. And then there's just arena rock hooky uh musical hooks in, in your electric playing. Right. I, I mean, heart is Anne's voice and your guitar playing, but you're so much more multifaceted than <laughs> that. You sung on some of heart's biggest hits. And yet I read that there were times where the representation of your role versus Anne's became very singular in the opinion of the label you had to kind of stay in your lane because they were worried for whatever reason right. that you'd use the consumer yet you were capable of being so much more than just the guitar player. You really didn't want to confuse the consumer. Which one is it? Is it the blonde or the brunette? That was our first button that said, and Nancy's the blonde, Anne's the brunette, you know, just in case you're wondering, you know, you but, had uh, a, a button. That was our first button we ever had. Made. Oh, like a pens. A pen. Yeah. Button. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Now it's on the guitar picks from last tour, but um, it's just pretty perfect because, you know, it's like, and you know, like somebody will write you a fan letter and to me, send it to me and go, I'm just such a big fan of your singing. And, you know, it's like, well, you might double check who you're actually writing this to, <laughs> but, <you know? laughs> but it's, it's, it's okay. It doesn't matter. It's like the, you know, it's the sisterhood and it's the presentation of the signature 
heartband. And if people are gushing and they make a mistake, it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't really matter. But I never could understand why they would think it was confusing to have my vocal be in the front on a certain couple of things because I did a video for called All for Love for a song for one of uh, Cameron Crowe's films. And I think it was singles. But, you know, they were like, they were just not going to help put any clout behind it. They wanted to let it die because it was not Anne and it was Nancy doing a solo thing outside of the heart brand, mm. you know. I don't really get that thinking, but I mean, when you had somebody like Fleetwood Mac, Stevie went out on her own and right. Christine had her own thing beforehand. Mm -hmm. I don't know what was in there, what, what burr was under their saddle. Well, I think maybe not giving enough credit to the consumer sometimes can... I agree. It allows for the consumer to oversimplify what you actually yeah. are if you're so precious with it. And I feel like... Yeah, that's true. It seems like you are able now to just say yes to all these different opportunities and be more fluid in what your expression of art is. And it's funny that at the height of your popularity, and I'm putting this in quotations for those listening because there's so much story left to be written, but that yeah. you, you would think the artist would be given more power and control. That's exactly right. It was so so a thing of the 80s as well. I mean, like I said before, the mind expanded 70s and the late 60s as well, obviously. And in that part of the 80s, the drug was an ego-driven kind of drug. It was cocaine at the time. Mm -hmm. Earlier, the culture has been more pot, you know, and right. other sort of psychedelics or whatever, mind-expanded type yeah. stuff. Depending on the mind. Mushroom, mushrooms aren't making people be like, I'm the greatest or, yeah, you know, like, whatever. I can control, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I can control those babes. Right. Put them in stilettos and make them have big hair, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was just that ego-driven time where there was a lot of machismo, you know, a mm. lot of hubris. And then at the end of the 80s, right, as soon as Nirvana came on the scene, all the artifice just dropped, fell away, like overnight. It was such an interesting thing to see that somebody should actually do a film about. But like we knew some previous band members that were in a new band called Alias, that they had like a number one hit on the radio. And then the following week, they were dropped from the label. But stylistically, everything had shifted like a flash mob. And right. it was an interesting era to see that happen because it had become so bombastic and so overblown by that point, including the hair, you know, right. <laughs> it was like a flash mob in the culture. Everyone's like, I'm done with that. Good riddance to all that stuff. And then it was cool in the nineties again, where you heard more guitars and a lot less layers of synth synthesizers and all that kind of the big artifice, you know. Well, you made incredible music in the 80s as well, even if maybe that wasn't your favorite packaging. And I'm reading into just how you describe it because you, you really owned the scene. You tried to manipulate us a lot and it was a pressurized era for us. And we didn't always appreciate, you know, that pressure to be, you know, sex bobs. 
<laughs> well, and especially when you're serious musicians and you're in a band with your sister and we really can write and we really can play. We're not just simpering on the video, you know, and there was pressure, you know, on us as sisters kind of getting through those times that were so kind of diverse from the original times. Every band, rock band, they say has a lifespan of about five years. So we were be well beyond the first lifespan. And the second lifespan was looked very different and it felt very different from the first lifespan. So getting through that as sisters was actually tougher than before or after that decade. There was all the expectation and then put Nancy up front and, you know, one of them put the cute one up in the front, put the fat chick in the back, you know, all that kind of stuff that was really hard to take. And it shouldn't have mattered if somebody was overweight or not overweight. I mean, look at Adele, look at, you know, Aretha Franklin. Right. Why, why did it have to be so specifically in that framework that these rock chicks were supposed to toe that line, you know? Right. And it just didn't make a lot of sense. A lot of it boils down to, you know, sort of dogged determination and having a strong mom and being from a military family. You know, just having an internal bullshit meter mm. that you can trust your own self with. You know, Anne has always had an extra sensitive bullshit meter because she kind of started there first and I joined up. Mm you know, basically just two years later, but she, you know, she'd already been through a lot of the club scenes where guys were like, well, wait, you need to see daylight between the thighs, you know, maybe you should wear some pantyhose, you know, like just different irritating assholery that ignorant, <laughs> you know, that we've all had to live through, but you can't pay attention to the negative stuff because the positive reward system is worthwhile you know like the transcendence of being able to get up and play music on a big stage is so worthwhile it's it's worth all the exhaustion it's worth all of the ignorance that you might encounter and small-mindedness and hubris and chauvinism all of it you know I think overall though that stuff is not as bad as it used to be compared to the day we, we started out. There's more sensitivity in the culture to that kind of stuff ever since the Me Too movement and all that right. stuff. It can't hurt. I, I, even that has gone a little, swung a little far. The, sure. The, and, you know, of course, overreacting, but but it's there. The movement is is there. There's awareness at least for that. So You said something in the Bob Lefsetz interview where he asked you about unwanted attention or the male gaze. And you're like, I walked with a purpose. Yes. <laughs> I wasn't wishy-washy in what I said. I think that there is absolutely a heightened awareness of how to treat women collectively just in society. But I think that the responsibility is on us if you and I are going to pursue this career to be headstrong and, and know what yeah. kind of attention we are inviting. It's a really subtle message that you send with body language in a situation where you, you might expect a wolf whistle, for example, you know, right. or some lame comment from construction workers, whatever. But, you know, <laughs> if you just, if you're like, if you look like you mean business and you're walking in your own power mm -hmm. with purpose 
and looking not at that person, if you're looking away or through them or past them, it's a good tool. (laughs) Yeah. I listened to Barracuda after I heard that you two had written it as a response to people speculating about your, are they really sisters? Are they lovers? Just like absurd theories, probably because people just wanted something to talk about. But what about Barracuda was your retaliation to people suggesting these kinds of things? Well, I've got to give some credit here to Anne because she was so insulted by this one grease ball that at this one event we were at you know the guy in the satin jacket that guy mm. and uh, <laughs> it's like yeah how's your lover and she goes yeah mike's fine you know her boyfriend and she goes no i mean nancy <laughs> and she went back to the hotel and she she wrote those words basically most of them out and and then you know we had this Rip Roy and Riff ready to go basically too. And that, yes, that just, you did. So uh, it was a really cool thing, you know, the way it came together so naturally out of anger <laughs> and insult, you know. But it's also, it's like, it's also a cool thing to hear a woman sing that way because it's like, don't mess with me. You know, it's mm-hmm. really like, don't mess with me. It's, it, it's so powerful. Yeah, it is. It's still one of the better guitar sounds too. I wish I could still recreate that sound. What what makes it difficult? What makes it unattainable, you think? I think it was just the room, mm-hmm. the analog gear, what the board sounded like, what exact pedals were used, which amps were used. Was it two amps mic'd or was it one amp? You know, every little facet of that sound. I haven't spent the week it might take to to recreate it yet. Right. (laughs) It was so fun to dive into all of this music and thank you for your story and your time and kicking ass. Well, let's do it again. Both of our albums are out or whatever you want to talk. Absolutely. I'd love love to do that. All right, Nancy, take care. Take care. Bye. That's a wrap. You can keep up with Nancy Wilson on her socials at Nancy Wilson, and of course, give Heart a follow at Heart Official and follow along with Nancy's new band at Roadcase Royale. And to keep up with me, my music, and my touring calendar, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at I am Maggie Rose. In fact, this week I'm releasing a new song called Do It out this Friday, February 19th. And you can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash I am Maggie Rose, where you can get exclusive Sleep with Songbird content, along with new music, live stream concerts, and more. You've been listening to Salute the Songbird on Osiris Media. The executive producers are Kirsten Cluthy and Brad Stratton from Osiris Media and Austin Marshall. And the show is edited and mixed by Brad Stratton. Original music by Maggie Rose. Please subscribe to Salute the Songbird on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. And if you like the show, recommend it to a friend or leave us a review so that others can join the conversation. Thanks so much for listening, and to close the show, here's Nancy Wilson's version of The Rising by Bruce Springsteen, the first single from her solo record. Can't see nothing in front of me. Can't 
Dream of life.